0: Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, The Hard Way, Clown House Part 2. The date, January 2023, and my name is Bel Several decades ago, The Who, led by Pete Townsend, penned a song called It's Hard. I remember a female DJ Riley suggesting the song was Well, frankly, a male anatomical reference. If she was correct, it was buried in some very poignant lyrics by Townsend. Now, for some, the heyday of the Who was the 1970s, and I love a lot of their songs, including Bob O'Reilly and Who Are You. But Townsend was a lot more than just a rocker who wrote interesting songs. He was considered the first to write a rock opera named Tommy, and Quadrophenia is one of the greatest albums ever made. But for me, I keep coming back to It's Hard. Almost in his throwaway lines, Townsend is really getting at something. And here's some of the lyrics. Any tough can fight, few can play. Anyone can try, but a few can stay. Any stud can reproduce, but few can please. Anyone can pay, few can lease. Any kid can fly, but a few can land. And any brain can hide. Few can stand. Any gang can scatter. Few can form. Any kid can chatter. Few can inform. Everyone complains. And a few can state. Anyone can stop. And only a few can wait. It's hard. It's very, 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 very hard. So very hard. Anyone can do anything if they hold the right card. Deal me another hand, Lord. This one's very hard. Per that last line, I feel that sentiment at least once a week, though I have been incredibly fortuitous to have been born in this republic at this time. But I am not sanguine about the challenges I face, nor of those faced by our republic. No, Townsend provides a robust list of virtues, the favorable ones definitely contain specific attributes. Perseverance, dedication, discipline, and the titular hard work exemplify his list. Here's another quote from a different song. Sometimes the hardest thing and the right thing are the same. That one was a bit more contemporary coming from the musical group The Fray. They say sometimes, but I would say Most of the time, the hardest thing and the right thing are the same. There is a Greek parable I have noted before and will again because of its penetrating look into the choices we make. The parable stems from the classical era of ancient Greece and is reported by Xenophon in Memorabilia. In Xenophon's text, Socrates tells how the young Heracles, or Hercules, as the hero contemplates his future He is visited by the female personifications of vice and virtue. They offer him a choice between a pleasant and easy life of continuous pleasures or a severe but glorious life and present their respective arguments. Vice states, I will lead you into the possession of pleasure and out of the reach of pain and remove you from all the noise and disquietude of business. The affairs of either peace or war shall have no power to disturb you. Your whole employment shall be to make your life easy and to entertain every sense with its proper gratifications. Virtue addressed Hercules with this. I will be open and sincere with you and must lay down this as an established truth that there is nothing truly valuable which can be purchased without pains and labor. The gods have set a price upon every real and noble pleasure. If you would gain the favor of the deity, you must be at the pains of worshiping him. If the friendship of good men, you must study to oblige them. If you would be honored by your country, you must take care to serve it. In short, if you would be eminent in war or peace, you must become master of all of the qualifications that can make you so. These are the only terms and conditions upon which I can propose happiness. My young men have the pleasure of hearing themselves praised by those who are in years, and those who are in years of being honored by those who are young. In a word, my followers are favored by the gods, beloved by their acquaintances, esteemed by their country, and honored by posterity after the close Of their labors. If for some reason this does not quite call up members of our current Congress, it is not because of unfamiliarity. This theme was revisited many times, especially in Renaissance art. My favorite is Allegory of Virtue and Vice, a painting by Venetian Paolo Veronese, created circa probably around 1565 in Venice and now located in the Frick Collection, which is in New York. Those crazy Gilded Age bastards, they bought half of Europe's work and brought them to New York City. One of the reasons that the left is now assaulting terms such as virtue, merit, or even the concept of hard work, is they would argue that such attributes do not negate a system rigged against their constituents. Instead, they would aver that those terms are window dressing used by, well, by whites to mask the systemic inequalities that favor whites. It is why the Smithsonian of all institutions recently stated that the concept of merit is somehow racist, a white construct. Wow. Their point is that all the hard work in the world does not mean anything when the odds are stacked against you. No amount of hard work will help one get ahead. First, The falsity of this concept is shown by the fact that in so many areas of American society today, ranging from politics to entertainment to the academy and even to science, where we see minorities getting ahead and even holding sway, this is a good thing. But the underlying premise of lack of merit is insidious, it is corrosive, and it is acidic. If we move away from those virtues stated by virtue in xenophon, we will be the loser. Condoleezza Rice did not become the first female African-American Secretary of State because her efforts were moderate. She worked hard. Though LeBron James is politically an ignoramus and a hypocritical one to boot, there is no sentient person who has watched him perform over the past two decades, who doubts his work ethic. At his level in the NBA, no amount of talent gets him to be regarded as perhaps the greatest of all time. It is hard work and his own agency that brought him to this status. When we think of the development of the Constitution, we tend to think first of James Madison and then of other prominent figures that include Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, Benjamin Franklin, and even George Washington, we think less about Governor Morris. In an article by Nicholas Moskvik entitled Forgotten Founders, Governor Morris, written in 2020, the author states At the convention, he was highly instrumental in creating the language and structure of the Constitution, as by his namesake, the penman of the Constitution. Now, by contrast, James Madison is often referred to as the father of the Constitution for his contributions to the Constitution's structure and philosophical underpinnings. But Morris, Morris, the penman of the Constitution, was on the two central committees at the convention. Now, he also served on the committee to consider the proportional representation and the Committee on the Slave, Trade, and Navigation. Yes, four committees. But the two biggies, the Committee of Style and Arrangement, charged with editing the final text and details of the document, and the Committee on Postponed Parts, or the Committee of Eleven, which crafted solutions to the intractable problems at the convention, like the selection of the presidency. As Madison recalled in an 1831 letter, The finish given to the style and arrangement of the Constitution fairly belongs to the pen of Mr. Morris. A better choice could not have been made as the performance of the task proved. Morris, for instance, changed James Wilson's original preamble language referencing we, the people of the states, to we, the people of the United States. Morris also spoke more than any other member of the Convention a testament to his famous oratorical abilities. He gave, are you ready for this number? 173 speeches over the course of the convention, more than second place James Wilson at 168 and third place James Madison at 161. In addition, Morris was influential during both the early and late stages of the proceedings, helping Edmund Randolph introduce a three-part plan for a whole new government, on May 30th, 1787. They included, first, that a union of the states must provide for the common defense, security of liberty, and general welfare. Two, that no treaty or treaties among any of the states as sovereign will accomplish or secure their common defense, liberty, or welfare. And three, that a national government ought to be established, consisting of a supreme judicial, legislative, and executive. As a leading Federalist, Morris thought there must be one supreme national power and that a mere federal compact was insufficient to bind the nation. Now, I love that title that Mosfiq used, Forgotten Founder. Today would be sadly difficult for most people to ascribe the works of Madison correctly, aside from that he, like tens of thousands around the world in the 18th century, owned slaves. But Morris? Would they be able to identify Governor Morris? Not a chance. Yet, he was not unknown in his day. And I'm, I don't know, I'm heartened and gladdened that in 2020, a scholar would write an essay about this critical figure. Our constitutional system, the most remarkable governmental document ever written, would be a different, a worse thing without Morris. The other prominent aspect about Morris was the serious hard work he put into the effort. Can one imagine any of the 220 GOP representatives putting in that kind of effort? There may be some hidden in the ranks, but we do not know who they are because instead we have our conservative media featuring the likes of an unserious person such as Lauren Boebert. To say controversial things and garner social media attention is easy. It's pleasurable even. I don't think we would have to wonder that given the choice between virtue and vice, where Bobert would be going. Coming up with detailed legislation that actually improves our nation is hard. Now there is a historical trend that some of the fiercest and most contested conflicts are not between what we might name natural enemies, but within the group itself. One such example is the violent struggles of iconoclasm within the Byzantine Empire. The iconoclastic controversy over religious images was a defining moment in the history of the Eastern Roman or Byzantine Empire. Centered in Byzantium's capital of Constantinople, which is today modern Istanbul, this iconoclasm controversy ranged from the 700s to 843. Imperial and church authorities debated whether religious images should be used in Christian worship or fully banned. This intra christian debate over images led to several armed struggles, riots, and even displaced emperors. Please note those dates, 700s to 843. The Islamic prophet Muhammad died in 632 CE. And afterwards, his followers began massive conquests, extending all the way from Spain to India's borders. And while the Arabs threatened the very existence of the Byzantines, they fought amongst themselves over icons. This was also demonstrated in the 1980s when Iraq, at the time ruled by Saddam Hussein's Baathist Sunni party, an Islamic sect, faced off against Shia Iran, another Islamic sect, The result was a million, a million casualties. You see, there is a a desire for purity, unity, for lockstep allegiance within the group. It is why at times conservative pundits, especially Trump supporters, seem to go after Mitch McConnell with far more glee and vitriol than aimed at the likes of, I don't know, Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, Elizabeth Warren, or Bernie Sanders. And uh, I am guilty of that as well as seen in my previous podcast. Sometimes when we are looking for that ideological purity, we want it obviously within our own group, and we don't get it. It sometimes can lead to the bitterest of fights. The issue is is that in a two-party structure, only one even cursorily talks about fiscal restraint, and that is why the GOP is my party. My goals are simple. I want smaller government as represented by a government spend to GDP ratio below 20%. Its average has ballooned to well over 25%. And in 2020, during COVID, a non-war year, it was over 44%. Of our total spending, at least 15% of that should be on defense. Currently, it's 10%. Now, I'm not a a factual neoconservative. I find many of our interventions costly and even unnecessary. Yet if the U.S. does not take the lead in military prowess, some other country will. And eventually that nation will begin to dictate terms to the United States. I question government intervention in most things, but that critical life and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, those first two are predicated on a strong military, which is a government function. As was stated, the common defense stated by governor morris since i cannot get anything close to this from the democrats heck they would drive uh, government spending gdp to 40 percent permanently if they could i mean look at the 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 original six trillion dollar build back better behemoth therefore i am a republican and thus get sorely disappointed when they fall so short of the goals that i have stated above. In my last podcast, I noted the foibles and follies of the GOP, referring to their initial tenure as a clown house. Some of the clowns included George Santos and his memory challenges, Kevin McCarthy surviving his metamorphosis to an invertebrate, Lauren Boebert, previously mentioned, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, and their competition to be Donald Trump's bestie. Come on, gals. We all know it's Carrie Lake. And finally, his high odiousness Matt Getz, who almost got pummeled by Mike Rogers. The selection of McCarthy as was seen in the House of Representatives was not precisely a disciplined exercise. Less trapeze and more oversized feet, red noses, eerie makeup, and zany, wacky behavior. So why do I care so much and spend a goodly amount of my week doing a podcast taking down the same group of people who will most advance my interests in congress that statement answers my question what is missing from the gop and so much of american life today is the correlation between what one wants to achieve and get out of life and the degree to which they achieve it it is directly inextricably linked to hard work one of the biggest terms that i have seen especially in the workplaces I want work-life balance. Well, that's great. We all want work-life balance. Doesn't that make sense? Work is work. That's why they call it work. Now, there are certain individuals, such as Warren Buffett, who says, I tap dance to work every day. Though Buffett has made, well, hundreds of billions of dollars from his particular type of work, even if he wasn't making money, he would probably do it anyway. But that is a rarity. Most of us have to do work to afford the balance, but the only way that balance comes is with the hard work. It's not work-life balance, it's hard work-life balance. In a recent article, Why Entitlement Reform is So Hard, written in the Dispatch by James C. Capretta, the U.S. electorate's hostility towards serious entitlement for reform has a long and consistent track record. Unyielding defense of the status quo has been a winning campaign strategy for decades, and serial efforts to push major changes to Social Security and Medicare onto the national agenda have all sputtered and failed. Both parties have internalized the lesson. Lawmakers have two means to address the problem. Spend less through reduced benefits for high earners, more efficient health care, or... My particular hobby horse, raising the age of eligibility. The other one is to increase revenue through tax hikes. Oh, wait a minute, tax hikes. If elected leaders do not restrain spending, raising taxes is the only option. The Biden administration clearly favors taking a tax-focused path. Shocking, right? As do many Republicans, albeit mostly implicitly. The trustees overseeing Social Security Project say that the program's two trust funds will run short of funding on a combined basis in 2035. Yes, folks, 12 years from now. Now, for Medicare's hospital insurance trust fund, depletion is expected in 2028. Yes, five years from now. The impending exhaustion of those trust funds could be the impetus for moving ahead with tax hikes, or if that constraint is pushed aside through various maneuvers and gimmicks. It could be the effect of escalating program expenditures are having on annual federal borrowing and total debt. Either way, the pressure is building and will not dissipate soon. We should hope, but I am not as optimistic about this pressure as the author is. I noted LeBron James earlier. To be good at basketball, one needs talent. I mean, I could spend 80 hours a a week in the gym, but I would never be very good at it. As Coach Sam Musabini states in the Epic Chariots of Fire, you cannot put in what God's left out. God made me slow, with a jump height able to clear a snail's shell, barely. One needs the talent to be good, but one also requires hard work. And part of hard work is putting in the time. Again, basketball. Time to work on the jumper, positioning, ball handling, and scouting opponents. The difference is often noted in precisely one half of each game in the NBA. Michael Jordan was not only the scoring champ, but also the defensive player of the year. Hard work. But also, let me be clear about this. Hard work can be a lot of time, but it is not just time. Hard is making tough choices. One of the tough choices, as I said, Social Security reform, Medicare reform, for me is pretty easy, actually. Raise it five years and make the age of eligibility 70. Now, the math has been run on that, and that will give us at least another decade or two to try to figure the thing out. But you realize, even though that is an easy thing to put into a bill, the politics of it are hard, incredibly hard. And I don't just mean the AARP coming running for the scalps of anybody who decides to go down that road. I mean, everybody's going to be doing that. It's going to be a hard, hard choice. Now, in terms of our supine Congress, there are really three methods of governance today, and they consist of the following. First, leadership creates a massive bill and then forces it on Congress at the last minute without debate or consideration. We just saw that with Pelosi's Porkfest, bloated, bile-ridden $1.7 trillion omnibus bill. The second is to create massive bills, but instead of spilling out the details, they abrogate their responsibilities and push all of the details to the executive branch. With the ACA being the most prominent, that particular bill contained over 400 references that the HHS will decide that would be the Health and Human Services Department. And their third methodology, kick the can down the road. This has been done with the necessary reform of the ACA, never done. It is the approach to the impending bankrupt entitlement programs as noted above. It is prevalent with tax reform, immigration, crime, and the nature of the executive agencies, which operate today more like mini-governments with revenue, regulation, judicial practices all under the same roof. We see this today from the SEC, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and even the Department of Transportation. They are all mini-governments in and of themselves, and of course Congress does nothing about any of it. At this rate, Social Security is to go bankrupt in 12 years. Medicare will be there in five. It is time for hard choices. And since I have very little faith in the Democrats to do so, it will have to be the GOP. Now, I must confess to a smidge of doubt. The past and maybe current leader of the GOP is Donald Trump and the House leader is McCarthy. But like Hercules, I only have two choices and it has to be the GOP. And like Herc. I will be put through a lot of pain. But unlike the cleaner of the Augian stables and slayer of the Nemean lion, I am not so certain I will see the glory that he did. Thank you for listening to this latest Conservative Historian podcast. Please check out all of our podcasts. We have over 140 of them. And so please keep listening. Thank you.